Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast, the internet's best resource for getting ahead as a student, but a terrible resource for establishing a definitive tier list for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, though when that tier list inevitably does come out, Baby Bowser is going to be at the top of it, right? Right at the top. Right at the top. Obviously. Right at the top of the Inkling. It's a great character. And uh, King K. Rule. I don't play either of those. <laughs> I actually haven't. It's a Wii Fit Trainer either. is number two. We oh yeah, obviously. Um, I think those are two and three actually, because my main girl Lucina is at number one. Okay, at least you didn't say Wario. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to annoy you by maining Wario, but it just doesn't fit my play style. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I just really like Lucina, so <laughs> you don't have to deal Fair. with that. But uh, I think at, when I have some free time, I'm going to learn Wario. Just to annoy you a little bit more. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, who can say no to flatulent space fighting moves? Me. I really hope they retain that in his character. I don't see the, why they would remove it. It just seems so quintessentially Wario. <laughs> I'm sorry. He Are used you mad to, that... He used to, you know, wear yellow and like treasure. I mean, he's right there. He's wearing yellow and likes treasure. I played him in the DS Mario 64. That was a good game. That's true. That was a good game. Also, the Wario Land games were really good. Specifically 3 and 4, because I never played 1 and 2. But uh, they were fun. Yeah. They were more puzzly. I mean, I do love WarioWare. I mean, and WarioWare is great. Those games are fun. Yeah. But he's dumb. Anyway, something about useful stuff. Something about useful stuff. Um, I guess introductions are in order. My name's Thomas Frank, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend Martin. And uh, we're going to act like we know things on the internet. That's what I like to do. That's what so many people do. You know, they just never, never acknowledge it, but that's yeah, what just, we're doing. I just like to act like I know what I'm doing. Yeah. So we have five questions today, and hopefully we have five answers. We're going to see. No, we're going to have ten answers. Oh, okay. I'm not committing to it that. It could be ten answers. I can't answers. guarantee I mean, that we're going to have ten answers. If it was an answer answers. per person, it would be ten answers, right? Maybe, unless we overlap. I'm not going to guarantee that we have two distinct answers. Well, I know that for a couple of these, I barely have answers. That's so cool. I'm glad that you're here because... Well, I probably have the answers to those two written down. I think you if do. The, if they're the ones Yeah, and I think you assuming. know like which ones yeah. I'm talking about. So uh, we're just going to jump right into it. But before we start, um, this is a five questions episode, and I like to kind of give my little spiel about this format um, every time we do it. So I think every three, four weeks... Something like that. Five weeks. We take five questions from you guys that we get from Twitter, we get from Instagram, we get from email, basically all the ways that you know how to contact us. And we do kind of like a lightning round episode where we give shorter answers to each one of those questions. So if you want one of your questions answered on five questions or to have maybe it potentially developed into an entire episode, like the previous Ninja Warrior episode was, that Uh, was a question that could have easily been in five questions, but I wanted to do a whole episode on it. Um, you can email thomas at collegeofogeek.com your question. You can tweet us. I'm Tom Frankly on Twitter. You're Yo Martholomew. Uh, and those ins- those uh, usernames are the exact same on Instagram as well. So however you want to communicate with us, smoke signals, those might work. 
Don't show up at our door. Don't do it in a forest fire. If you show up at my door to ask a question, I guarantee it will not be answered on a five questions. That's true. That's the only counterpoint there. Though, if they do show up at our door, they could potentially use smoke signals. That's true. Because our building was on fire. I get there's the (laughs) you know, there's the workaround. Luckily only like the the dumpster was on fire and they got that put out pretty quickly. I'm gonna light my apartment on fire soon enough. Uh please don't. Please every once in a while you just need to to purge everything and start over. Please be careful when you're cooking. Especially when you're in an apartment <laughs> and it puts tons of other things. No, it's, you're right. It's a terrible idea. We've been playing this game called Don't Starve. And there's one character who is really good in most aspects. But every once in a while, she'll just get nervous and drop fire on the ground. Why, <laughs> why are they carrying fire? I don't know why. I think she's kind of like a pyro. And because of that, if anyone's playing her character, they're not allowed to be in the main camp. Are they nervous because they keep walking around and dropping fire? It's because very I'd possible. be pretty nervous about that. It's very possible. I don't know. I'm not going to venture a guess, but they do tend to drop fire. Seems like a bit of a self-fulfilling sort of thing. Yeah. I don't play that character. I just like the one who's really strong when he's well-fed and really weak when he's not well-fed. As long as I keep him well-fed, Simple. he's an awesome character. So, anywho, let's get into our first question here. Yes. Which is, I have a pretty good job and I've been staying with my parents while saving a little bit of money. Next year, I'm going to go do my master's degree in a different city and it's going to be full time. So, I'll need to be able to live off of what I've saved. So, how do you budget your expenses when you have no income? How indeed? Well, I mean, have you ever been in this situation before? Only for a little bit because I had a job for most of college. Okay. But for a little bit, I mean, obviously what I what I took was how much money do I have? And I tried to divide it amongst the months. Yeah. However, it's not quite that simple yeah. because not every month is the same. So while you're making money, you're probably saving up stuff for an emergency or mm-hmm. you're saving up stuff for like uh, December is a very expensive month yeah. for me generally. Got to travel. Got to get stuff from my family. Got to do all this nonsense. That gets expensive. So – what I would try to do is preemptively guess how much are each of these months going to take and then like percentage-wise and try to divide it out that way. Yeah. Keeping in mind that in addition to like the holiday season, which is expensive, there's also books and supplies yeah. that you need to buy every semester. And th- those can add up. So if you didn't budget them in, that, that yep. might hurt you. That was the first thing that came to mind for me because it would be so easy to say, all right, my master's program is a year, so it's 12 months give or take. I don't know if there's a break or whatever. And then you could say, okay, so I've got rent, I've got food, I've got whatever fixed expenses. Let's just divide it out and say I have X number of dollars per month that I can use. But you're right. There are non-monthly one-time expenses that are going to come up. Yeah. Like books and tuition and fees, things like that. So you have to, I think you have to plan ahead for those kind of things. And you also just have to kind of like try to create a buffer. Yeah, like don't – I would leave at least something left over after you've divided every month in addition to keeping track of the expenses that might come up. Because yeah. otherwise, I feel like sometimes if you give yourself an allowance, you can – ironically, you're going to be stating how much you can't spend over. But you're also going to be stating exactly how much you're going to spend because at the end yeah. of the month, you're like, I've still got $80. Well, I'm going to spend it, obviously. Yep. I'm allowed to. <laughs> so you're going to keep running right up to the edge of that budget. And that's why mm-hmm. you, you need the leftover for things like books and holidays and stuff. Because otherwise, you're going to find that you just bought a bunch of stupid stuff every time you had any excess at all. Yeah. So one thing I didn't think of until now, but could be potentially useful here, would be to put all of the money in a savings account and then essentially pay yourself once a month just like you got paid with your job. Because if oh, you yeah. have 
10 grand sitting in a checking account and it's just, it's all spendable. I'm not saying you're going to waste that 10 grand on a boat or something, but every time you have an expense, like, oh, should I buy this stupid kombucha at Whole Foods? You're going to think, well, I got 10 grand in the bank account. Yeah. So if you kind of remove or detach yourself from all the money you have and have a sort of like working account that has, you know, one month's worth of expenses or maybe a slight buffer in there, I think you're going to be a little more cognizant of the percentage of money you're spending when you buy everything you buy. Yeah. So and I, I don't useful. even know why I didn't think of that because I actually, my bank accounts are like that because that, one right? of them is literally labeled current. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm working with this month. That is this month's bills and food and stuff. And then everything else gets dumped into savings or so taxes or something. Do you just have a current and then savings? Is that it? Or are there more? I have a third one that I used to use for a spending firewall, but now I just use it to get paid. Oh, okay. Oh, is that the money that... That, yeah, so my income gotcha. goes into its own account, and then I've got my current where I'm keeping track of my bills. That makes sense. So, yeah, yeah, that's smart. because otherwise my current will suddenly get jumped up every time I get paid, mm-hmm. right? And then I'll be like, "Oh, look at all this!" And I can no, use it. Don't do that. That doesn't go there. It goes into savings and bills. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I said, uh, actually, the first step in this process is you want to define your emergency fund. And I don't know if this needs to be in its own separate account or if it just needs to be in the savings account, but you need to say, all right, I need, you know, $500 or $1,000 in case something happens because I have no income right now. There's not a whole lot I can lean on. Um, And really like this is a very similar situation to the runway concept in startups where a startup may get a seed round and they have a million dollars in the bank and they have X number of employees and expenses. So they know we've got six months of runway before either things need to take off or before we are out on the street or the company's closed. So you just kind of have to think of it this way. And the nice thing with the master's program is you're not waiting for some unspecified time in the future where your business takes off. You just know the program lasts this long. So I just need to figure out how to um, live month to month for all of those months. And I think once you define the emergency fund, once you try to realistically account for the textbooks and the fees and the holiday gifts and things like that, maybe adding a buffer there because it's very difficult to estimate those kind of things, what you have left over is what you can divide among the remaining months. Yeah. And it, you may be stretched really thin, but if you're not, I would say to challenge yourself not to use up that entire budget with the apartment you pick or with the kind of food you buy. Like, see if you can even have a buffer there, just in case. Well, I think just in case is really important here because we're talking about school in this particular situation. I had to retake a class once because I Mm -hmm. broke my ankle and the teacher didn't like me and I failed due to absence. Also, you broke your ankle. But yeah, like Like that, you had to probably pay some for that too. Yeah, but like if if scheduling goes wrong, you have to stay another semester. Mm -hmm. That's a huge chunk. It, you should at least have s- some sort of idea of what you might do if that happens, yep. including a small emergency fund. Mm-hmm. And you might not know that, oh, this month I actually had to buy a birthday present for my niece. I forgot about that. Yeah. Like, there's always things that are going to come up. So if there's $800 per month to play with, then maybe try to find an apartment and a grocery budget and whatever else that spends 700 a month. Yeah. Just so there's some leftover. It's all about having resources to enable you to take a punch. It's like the biggest thing for me. All right. Uh, Unless there's anything else that you want to add to that. Nope. Let's let's move to the second question. 
So this says, I'm in a good place right now, grade-wise, but I'm struggling with severe depression. Every, uh, oh, every day is important, so I can't afford to take a day off. So uh, as a result, I find myself being less productive, not doing my to-do lists, not hitting the deadlines I set, and I end up cramming everything uh, last minute because of my low motivation that is caused by my depression. So how can I stay productive while I'm depressed? Yeah, so uh, first off, the, any answer I give right now is not a solution to depression. It's not a full solution to depression. Yeah, uh, I empathize. I have experience with this, but I will never be the final stop here. So yeah. outside of that, so first off, we got um, the obvious things that can sort of temporarily boost your mood. Little things like uh, exercise, making sure that you're sleeping enough and you're getting enough food and water. Because if you're not doing those things already, they can help. They're not the solution yeah. by themselves, but they do drag you down further if you're not doing them. Um, How do you get yourself to exercise if you're already depressed? Well, it's pretty hard to get yourself to do everything yeah. if you're already depressed. So, And I empathize with this. I've been depressed um, basically often on my entire life. Some periods much worse than others. But... I guess when it comes down to it, I end up trying to um, set up little systems and, and force myself to do stuff. I don't want to do it. I'll say out loud, this doesn't matter. This isn't important. Nothing is important. Uh, but if it's not important that I do this and nothing is important, it's also not important that I don't do this. So I kind of just mm. willingly will go through the motions of something okay. that I don't want to do that I think is pointless. Because sometimes, not every time, you can't always solve it every time. Mm -hmm. But sometimes going through the motions will sort of distract my brain enough with something else okay. that I'll like find myself focused, ironically, or I'll find myself in a better mood because I thought going for a walk would be completely pointless. And I said, yeah, it's going to be pointless, but I, I, I mean, it's just as pointless as sitting here. So I'm going to go walk anyway. Yeah. And maybe it's nice outside. And maybe I find that the fresh air actually helps me and I come back in a temporarily good mood. It won't last forever, mm. but it's it's something. It's it's more than nothing. But so like a big part is mitigation in the moment. Yeah. Well, I think thinking about the future is not necessarily a great idea. Rumination is a terrible idea. Yeah. It's a large part of depression. You know, just thinking about how everything is bad over and over. And I've also got OCD, so I definitely think about everything over and over and over and over and over and over. And over. But and and sometimes you're just not in a good place to do something. You just, you just shouldn't be doing something at that moment. Mm -hmm. So maybe you should give yourself a break. Maybe you should try to do one of the things where you just force yourself to do it and maybe it'll make you feel better. Um, actually, for a while, there would be times where I would start to feel really, really, really down. And I'd just turn on Breath of the Wild, put, put the pointer at a random spot on the map and just kind of walk over there. It was like meditation. <laughs> but it took me out of the real world. Yeah. And sometimes I need to be distracted from the real world by something else, and then I, I come back out, and, like, it's starting my day over. It's like waking up again. And, and the negative thoughts have been distracted fully by me meditatively playing a game. Mm. Um, sometimes it's the period of the day. At nighttime, honestly, I'm kind of useless. Once, and so winter's not great for me because it's nighttime faster. Yeah. Um, but if I'm, I'm at home alone and, and it's nighttime, I will often find myself in just a really unhelpful period of like existential dread or I'm, I'm ruminating on all the, all the problems that I haven't solved yet going out years in the future, which is very crushing and overwhelming. You can't solve years from now problems now. Yeah. So um, because of this, I just know 
Nighttime, I really shouldn't try to force myself to do anything. I should focus on doing something that might distract me or make me feel better, spend time with Ashley. So I wake up at 5.30 because in the mornings, mm. I feel good. Yeah. And I know it won't last the whole day. So I need to take advantage of that, that like un unmessed with moment. Nothing has bothered me yet because I just woke up. So you're getting up earlier to give yourself more time. Yeah, is it, it's, it's like a fresh you. start. Nobody needs anything of me that early. Yeah. None of my stuff is due. You know, nothing has bothered me. I haven't read any upsetting news yet. It's 5.30. Nothing's happened. My brain is fresh. Hmm. And that's often the best time for me. Um, I would also say uh, you should allow yourself to feel bad. You, feeling guilty that you're not getting stuff done because you're depressed is a great way to stay depressed okay. and to stay not getting stuff done. Yeah. I like guess it's, it's not your fault. You can't just control emotions like that. You can't control chemical stuff if that's what's going on. It, Guilt is not going to help here. So it's going to create a feedback loop mm -hmm. where you keep getting worse and worse. So just accept it. Wherever you're at now is the starting point. Um, like I said, sometimes just getting started on something, even though it seems pointless, helps. Like something as simple as a Pomodoro session yeah. on your work. I mean, even if I'm just sitting there for 20 minutes and I'm like, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just staring at this document. I'm not writing anything. But if I think of one good sentence in that, then the next time I try to do that, I've, I'm a little bit farther, and that's better than just sitting around and getting nothing done at all. Yeah, it's some amount of progress. Yeah. Um, and if you do get something done, if you do happen to accomplish something, it can help in several ways because, one, you get something done. Two, it's distracting you. If you yeah. get into the flow state, you're not thinking about other stuff. Mm -hmm. The depressing thoughts go away. Uh, three... Getting work done can build confidence and optimism and a feeling of self-reliance, which can start building a positive feedback loop. Yeah. And I guess outside of these things, which are really sort of in-the-moment solutions, because in-the-moment is the only time you're going to be able to fix things. Just you can plan for the future when you're feeling good. But if you're feeling bad, it's, focus on the moment first. You're not going to think good things about five years from now if you feel really bad. Mm -hmm. And um, outside of that, consider seeing somebody, like a professional. Um, yeah. I see a clinical psychologist for my OCD, and I have progressed a ton in the mm -hmm. last year. I was in a much, much worse place with it, and it's, it's incredibly helpful. I never would have done it because I was stubborn. I'm very stubborn still yeah. about, like, I'll solve my own problems. Yep. I don't need this. That's an unhelpful mindset. Luckily, I did, I did not want – I saw the OCD, if it kept getting worse the way it was, harming my relationship, and I didn't mm -hmm. want it to do that, so I was willing to swallow my pride – and accept help. And it turns out that was the right decision. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it sucks. I'm stubborn. I get it. Mm -hmm. I empathize with a ton of this. But sometimes you just have to get the help anyway. Yeah. At least just try it a couple times. Just, you know, just write it down say, I'm going to talk to somebody four times. Mm -hmm. Just get yourself started. Yeah, I think it's important. And I've, I've never dealt with anything that I could legitimately call depression. So it's, it's hard for me to truly empathize because I believe that to empathize, you have to be able to understand the feelings truly. I mean, maybe, is, is that how you view that word? Well, I, I think that for this, it's, it would maybe be hard to imagine. You at least need to be able to imagine what it, what it feels yeah. like. And if, like, if for me at least, it's, it feels like I'm trapped all the time. Yeah. Like no matter what I do, I will stay trapped yeah. when I'm in, when I'm in a, a darker mood. Mm -hmm. And I, everything is pointless. I'll never get out. 
it can never be better. It's a lot of nevers. It's a lot of yeah. making the problem way bigger than it needs to be, which is why focusing on the very present moment is the way that helps me get out at least mm-hmm. because never is not what I want to think about. I can't prove that right or wrong. Yeah. I can't prove myself wrong about next year sucking. Maybe it will, but I can just go do something at the moment, even though I think it's pointless. Yep. So I've never dealt with depression, but I've dealt with getting myself into spots where I feel that I'm going to let someone down in the smallest way. And it, it just drives me crazy. Like I hate the idea of letting anyone down in any way, any dimension whatsoever. Uh, and this is not helped by the fact that I also have a tendency to take on more than I can handle and get really excited about starting projects. So in the past couple of months, I've gotten to a point with my production schedule where I had committed to a certain number of things like videos and podcasts and everything. Uh, and I got behind to the point where I like, I realized like there's no way I can get them all done. Um, and my solution to that first was just to work harder, which is why we did the procrastination series. And I was like, I'm gonna do three videos in one week. I've never done it before, but we're just gonna, we're just gonna push through. I don't care how much it hurts. I'm just gonna do it. And I mean, we did get three videos out in almost a week's time. I think it was like eight days instead of seven, Yeah, which is cool. But, uh, that burned me out and it didn't burn me out to the point where I couldn't work anymore, but I could feel it like really like mentally taxed me. And I woke up one morning and I was just like, I was feeling so listless and down about it, but I didn't want to tell anyone. And I finally just started talking to Anna and Anna's like, have you talked with anybody about this? Like, have you talked with your sponsor manager? Have you talked with like your business partner, anything? I'm like, not really. I just figured I would push harder and eventually it would, it would somehow work. Um, so she convinced me to give my sponsor manager a call and tell him what was going on. Tell him I feel like the, the production schedule that we committed to was too much right now. And it was great because he was super understanding, but he, he told me something. He happened to be in Denver actually um, on like totally random other business. So we met for breakfast and he said, look, you're not going to disappoint me if you have to reduce your production schedule. What will disappoint me most is if you eventually burn out and we can't work together anymore because you've just like killed your ability to do work at all. Yeah. And it's one of those things where you kind of know that, but the point of burnout is not set in the future and it is in the future. And it gets, I mean, it, it gets easy to delude yourself into thinking you can just push and push and push and you'll never hit that point. Even though you know that at some point you will. Like if you get in a treadmill and you keep cranking the speed dial and you keep running and running, eventually you will fall off. Yeah. And I think we all know this instinctively about our bodies, but we deny it when it comes to our work and our brains. Yeah, we think willpower is yeah, the in, infinite solution. There's some there's some infinite trove of willpower, and if I just watch enough episodes of Dragon Ball Z or if yeah. I watch enough Tony Robbins videos, I can tap into it. Yeah, and that's, that's so harmful because it makes it your fault when you mm-hmm. can't tap into it. It's like yep. I'm worthless because I couldn't find this mystical mood that I'm supposed to get into. I assume yeah. all the magic internet people just – they get in this mood – and then they work for 48 straight hours. And now they're millionaires. I'm pretty sure they just get inspired and I haven't been. So I suck. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically that's, where I was. Yeah, I was like, um, and it's, 
so you know how like with with your OCD, you will doubt your own conclusions or you'll meta analyze your thoughts. Oh yeah, for a while I convinced myself I didn't even have OCD. That's how much I yeah. doubt things. So I don't have OCD, but the position I'm in as like a productivity YouTuber or whatever, it actually makes me feel like I'm the one like, or one of the few people who doesn't deserve to burn out. Like, oh, yeah. you do things on productivity, so you're supposed to be perfect at productivity. How dare you burn out? How dare you have uh, unproductive days? Like, like, like you're nice you're to everybody to. but yourself. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's funny because, like, I think everyone does this. It's just that I have, like, a particularly yeah. ironic way that I can construct this narrative. But... I think even the person sending us this question probably feels some of the same feelings. They're probably like, oh, I'm from a family that expects uh, high performance. So maybe other kids are allowed to burn out, take a break, but I'm not allowed to. I'm supposed to be better. Yeah. I think everyone has some reason that constructs a really convincing narrative as to why they are not allowed to get off the treadmill, even though they would tell a friend to get off the treadmill and slow down for a while. So I guess like we may have to be the people to tell this person like, Slow down the treadmill. Be a better friend to yourself. Yeah, because if you burn out and you you know slide into years of just doing nothing because you have just like permanently damaged yourself, no one benefits from that. Yeah. So you may think that whatever goals you've set for yourself right now, you may think whatever like pace of work that you are on is is you know of utmost importance, and to slow down would be complete failure, and that would be horrible. But the alternative is worse. Yeah. And I think with a lot of this, actually, like the the feeling trapped, the feeling like everything is pointless, sometimes it it might just be based on like a faulty assumption of what success is. And just like with the procrastination video for Mm -hmm. short-term things, maybe what you really need to do is cut your losses, redefine success, and start from scratch. That often helps me because it's like I set this unrealistic goal. Uh, You know, back a long time ago, maybe it was magically get the perfect relationship without having to try very hard at it, you know? Unrealistic goal. Had I redefined my success, maybe I would have made more progress. Yeah. If I set a productivity goal that's too high and I think I'm failing or a financial goal where I'm supposed to have like $3 billion in the bank, but it turns out I'm I'm not because I, you know, I broke my finger and a bunch of stuff. The answer isn't to be upset that I broke my finger. I need to redefine success. I'm not going to have $30 billion in the bank if I broke my finger and the American medical system costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So redefining success is the only way to make myself view this situation better because it's like how we interpret the world around us. Yeah. And that's something I got to remind myself of a lot. I, I, I get to these points where I'm like, okay, I've worked my way to here. So now this is what success means. And it's very hard for me to let it go. Even if, even if a setback occurs, because a rational person would say, oh, a setback occurred. I should now uh, make that you know, change to what I'm expecting, just like I did when the success occurred. Like, I raised my standards because my uh, level of success raised. Why don't I lower my standards when the, the rate of failure <laughs> yeah, increases? You're like never allowed to go back. <laughs> it's like a ratchet, right? And you know, I think to some degree that's good because it builds resiliency, but it can become toxic. And it can make us burn ourselves out. Yeah. So yeah, I got to the point where I'm like, oh, I'm I'm doing this now. I'm I've been able to, you know, sustain this amount of production, even though I can feel it wearing on me. Um, the videos have gone out. The income has increased. So now I can uh, maybe buy a house a year earlier or something like that. And then 
I feel my myself getting burnt out. I wonder if this production schedule is even worthy. But then I'm like, oh, but I still got to keep that goal. The new one, I got to keep that. Yeah. I can't. I can't let it go back to what it originally was. Yeah, this is what I was living for. What am I going to do? Change what I'm living for? That's that's yeah. hard and scary and maybe disappointing sometimes. Mm-hmm. And we have deep loss aversion. Yeah. It's like rooted in our DNA. And it it's there for a reason. It makes sense. But again, it can become, it can become toxic if we let it take over our lives. This week's episode of our show is brought to you by our friends over at Brilliant, who are building a fantastic learning enrichment tool for anyone wanting to get better at math, science, or computer science, but also for anyone wanting to become a universally better problem solver. And that should hopefully be you because to solve new and novel problems, which are probably going to crop up in your career, especially if you are challenging yourself, uh, you're going to need to build a mental toolkit of frameworks and cognitive skills that can let you take on problems that aren't just the rote things that you've seen before, that aren't just things that have already been solved and are being thrown at you for you know a second solving just so you can learn things. If you want to be creative, you need to build a flexible cognitive toolkit. And that is what Brilliance courses can help you do because problem solving is a skill that is built up every time you solve a new and difficult problem. And even though you're solving maybe a math problem or a computer algorithms problem, the experience you get there is gonna help you become a better problem solver everywhere else. And that is exactly the mindset that Brilliant uses when they design their courses. They throw you immediately into challenging problems and situations that you're probably gonna get stuck at, at least at some point, but that keep your interest high and that make sure that you're learning effectively and quickly the entire time. And the other thing that I like about Brilliant's problems is that they are manageable. They're broken into small chunks. So even though they are challenging, they aren't overwhelming right out of the gate. They are very tiny. You have one little challenge to take on and eventually you may have to go dig into their wiki, learn some uh, new concepts, dig through example problems, but you're gonna be able to come back eventually and solve that problem. So within Brilliant's library of courses, you're gonna find a ton of courses you can sink your teeth into, ranging from math courses like calculus and algebra, science courses like gravitational physics and classical mechanics, and even computer computer science courses like algorithms and computer memory. Uh, The one that I'm going to recommend this week though is their science essentials course because yes, they do have lots of really advanced courses, but if you're someone like me, someone who hasn't taken science for many, many years and maybe needs a refresher, I think the science essentials course is gonna be a great place to start because it covers topics like heat and matter and forces and energy. And these are the kind of concepts you're gonna wanna get a firm grasp on before you go tackle the more advanced topics. So whether you want to take that Science Essentials course or start digging into one of their more advanced courses, you can start learning for free today by going over to brilliant.org slash collegeinfogeek. And if you were one of the first 83 people to sign up and use that link, you're going to get 20% off your annual premium subscription as well. Big thanks to Brilliant for sponsoring this podcast and being a big supporter of College Info Geek. And another thanks goes out to our other sponsor this week, Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community built to help creators boost their curiosity and their creativity. Within their library of 25 5,000 classes, actually more than 25,000 classes at this point, you're going to find expert teachers that can help you boost your skills in creative writing and digital animation, social media marketing, photography, and many other topics. For instance, if you've ever wanted to learn the intricacies of search engine optimization or SEO, then they have an excellent course by a guy named Rand Fishkin, who is one of the world's foremost experts in that topic. And uh, to be honest, if you have any kind of an interest in digital marketing, I think this is an essential skill to learn because basically every business out there that's operating today on the internet needs to take advantage of SEO. And it is a huge part of what we do at College Info Geek. I mean, 
we don't do a whole lot of paid advertising to get traffic to our website. It's all learning SEO and how to optimize it as best we can, right? Yeah. Yeah. Beyond that, on Skillshare's platform, you're going to find thousands of other courses that can benefit your career in other ways as well. And all of them also take advantage of the principle of active learning. Within every course on Skillshare, you're going to find a project area where you can start sinking your teeth into the skills that you're learning right away, along with a discussion area where you can ask questions and get feedback from both the course's teacher and other students who are taking it. And best of all, because you're a listener of our fine show, you can get two free months of unlimited learning on Skillshare by going over to Skillshare.com slash geek and signing up. That is Skillshare, I'm going to spell that for you guys, S-K-I-L-L-S-H-A-R-E.com slash geek, G-E-E-K, and signing up. Once again, Skillshare.com slash geek to get two months of completely free unlimited learning on Skillshare's platform. Big thanks to Skillshare as always for sponsoring this episode, being a big supporter of College of Geek as well. And let's get back into it. Um, before we turn this episode into just that question, let's move on to the next one. Yeah. And I think this one's going to be for you primarily as well. Uh, so this person says, I've been learning in a private English speaking school when suddenly my life decided to surprise me. We shifted to Hamburg, Germany due to my dad's job. And I had to learn German for about a year and now I'm studying in a German school where all the courses are taught in German. So I struggled in the beginning, but I am now pretty much in the flow. However, in spite of learning hard every single day and practicing the language, I really cannot be as good as the native speakers. It is tricky for me as I need that as I need time to build grammatically correct sentences in my mind, whereas a native speaker can speak without thinking. I actually read a lot of books in German, but that doesn't help that much. I'm told that I'm doing very good in a foreign or for a foreign for a foreign German speaker, but I want to achieve the so-called impossible by being as good as a native speaker. So how do I do that? Yeah, so uh, this is quite the goal here. This is uh, big. So first, fluency, the, the ability to speak smoothly is like its own skill mm-hmm. on top of learning, you know, memorizing all the grammar and the vocabulary, on top of learning how to... Just speak in general, pronouncing things, say things, how to write things. You, sometimes the grammar is different depending on if you're writing or speaking. All of those things. But speaking smoothly and sort of uh, contemporaneously, when you just come up with stuff on the spot like we're doing now, a conversation. Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay. I, I wasn't sure about the word. But see there, I'm a native English speaker, <laughs> and that stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Speaking off the top of your head is its own skill, and yep. you need to work on that by itself. You cannot practice it by reading. Reading is great at teaching you how to read and also teaching you words and grammar. But it yeah. lit- it does literally nothing for your ability to speak mm-hmm. just on the spot like that. So you've got to practice it a lot, obviously, until it becomes automatic. Uh, according to what I've read, I'm not a brain scientist here, but on habit formation in the brain, basically, when you do something over and over and over again, you're strengthening sort of the connection between the neurons that need mm-hmm. to fire together for you to do it. So you are literally training your brain to do this better by doing it decently. I like to think of it lot. like uh, like deer paths in the woods. Oh, that like makes one sense. One deer just walks somewhere like there's not much of a path, but if they keep taking the same path over and over again, eventually it wears down into yeah, a trail. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good example. Um, so with that in mind, the goal of being just as good as a native speaker is very ambitious. The average person maybe knows, you know, like twenty to 30,000 words in their native language. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't always have to be that much. You know, we got different levels of education and vocabulary. I know like but, a billion. But even if I expand that to 10 to 30,000, just a t- 10 to 40, I think at 40 is a route, university yeah. educated. I'm fairly good at Spanish. 
Uh, I've been called fluent at times. I can hold many conversations. I once talked about internet mob justice with an actress from Mexico, and we were just talking about like a bunch of philosophical nonsense. But I can pretty much, I can almost guarantee you, I don't know 10,000 words in Spanish. Really? I don't even know if I know 5,000, honestly, because huh. when you're speaking, you don't need that many. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of like, a, you ever heard of a zip distribution? Yeah. Where it's, yeah. And these crop up everywhere, but it, there's always like the top thing, the most frequently used thing is just like double it's, it's the way next more. one. And then that one's like, you know, 33% more than the next one. That's just like this very steep drop off. Well, Even you, with our website, you go look at like the top pages, it's like 20. Yeah, and then there are plenty of pages that there's nothing. Mm-hmm. But you can you can learn like 5,000 words and speak like 96, 97% of yeah. what people say on a daily basis. So you're also comparing yourself to a native speaker, but what level are you comparing yourself to? Because if you're in school, maybe you're comparing yourself to like a university-educated native speaker. Yeah, Which is true. like double the challenge. If you're trying be- to speak fluently like your professor speaks... Yeah, that's, that's a little tougher. That's going to take time. Mm-hmm. So it's not impossible. But if you think about it, my entire life, I've been listening to English full time. Yeah. Full time listening comprehension. And, uh, you know, minus a few years, full time speaking yep. about every single possible kind of topic. Uh, the other day, I just learned a new word, entomophagy, the eating of insects. I didn't know that. There's a word I didn't know because I didn't run into it yet. And you have to run into a word several times before it means anything to you. Yeah. And if we're talking about rare words and rare grammatical structures, you haven't had a chance to run into them several times because they're rare and you've only been speaking for like a year or two. I've been speaking for 25, 20, I don't know when I started talking, but you know, above 23 years, the whole time, nonstop English in my environment all the time. (laughs) So like, it just, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit for the work that you've already done. Because speaking yeah, amazing. fluently and speaking like an average speaker just means the averagely educated speaker. It does mm-hmm. not mean that you sound like you're not Immanuel Kant now. Yeah. The only thing I had written here was um, fluencies. I don't know how good of a target it is because like a 50-year-old native German speaker, they've been hearing and speaking German for, I don't know, 48 years. Uh compare that to a 15-year-old German speaker. That's a pretty big difference. It's 35 extra years of yeah. listening and speaking and using the language. And this person, they aren't like a one-year-old because they at least are, you know, have an adult brain, but they've only been exposed to this language for a year. And they may be able to use learning techniques to accelerate the development, but native speakers, like how native of a speaker is like a four-year-old? Yeah. I mean, they're native, but how fluent are they? Eh. Well, and, and they can this, use some words. This person's probably also using their native language for something, whereas mm-hmm. that four-year-old knows nothing else. Yep. It can use nothing else. And the 15-year-old probably knows a whole section of vocabulary that that 50-year-old That's doesn't true. understand at all, even though they're a better speaker of the language. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking with some friends recently, and we saw uh, like a, a news article online that was like um, – some some cryptocurrency ICO fails due to a blockchain inconsistency or something like that. And I'm like, if my grandma read that headline, it would be like a different language. Yeah, it means nothing. There was like not a single word in the headline that she would have understood. 
other than maybe the or uh. <laughs> yeah, and those really aren't that helpful. But all, all the all the function words or the content words, not the function words, all the content words were completely foreign to anybody who doesn't know about cryptocurrency. So this is why I think fluency is. I mean, it's a it's a noble goal. It's a cool goal, and it's very easy to say like I want to be fluent in Spanish, but depending on the subset of people you talk to, fluency is going to change. Like you said, if you're talking to Immanuel Kant, fluency is a huge goal. If you're talking to an 11 year old who just wants to talk about Smash Brothers and go into the candy store, it's a little easier. Yeah. So, and this person's at a German speaking school, so they're in an academic environment. They're probably surrounded by a lot of people from many different backgrounds. They're trying to talk with their teachers who have an academic background. They're trying to talk with friends who have a totally different set of things that they want to talk about. So um, don't beat yourself up, I think is the biggest thing. But like you said, at the beginning of this question, you got to speak. Yeah. Reading is good for exposing yourself to new vocabulary words and becoming used to seeing them, but you got to use them. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read books in Spanish, but I haven't spoken it in a few months. And mm-hmm. therefore, I know when I speak, I'm going to be a little rusty for like the first few days. Yeah. And and that just takes time. But I don't know nearly as many words. And I've seen really well-read people who don't speak in public have to give public speeches. They don't seem that fluent. Yeah. Because it's a different skill. They've read a lot. They know a lot of words, but they aren't used to saying them. That's a good a crowd. point because even a native speaker can't always come up with what they're saying like mm-hmm. that off the top of their head. Like it's a specific skill. Plenty of people hate improv in their speech oh, class yeah. when you have to do the, the impromptu speech. Mm-hmm. That's just like one of the most hated things because it's its own skill, even if you speak that language fully natively. Yep. And so this is something where we're verging into territory that we may not fully understand scientifically, but I think that there are parts of the brain um, – related to extemporaneous communication, whether it be just talking like you and I are doing right now or giving a speech that's not super planned or maybe say freestyle rapping that are very unconscious. When we are are learning vocabulary, when we're trying to deliberately string together a sentence in our heads, I think at first when you're learning a language that is really conscious because it's like a giant lookup table in your brain. Like what's the English word? for marshmallow. Now what's the translation? Now how do I conjugate that given the the past tense of the sentence? That's all conscious. But when I'm talking with you, or especially when I'm just out there talking with Anna and there's no performance aspect of it, it's almost unconscious. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of what I'm saying so I don't say something stupid or hurtful, but a lot of times it's just the words come out. Yeah. Those neural connections are strengthened to the point that you probably can't explain the grammar mm-hmm. of like a complicated sentence that you might say. Mm-hmm. A lot of us don't even, I didn't even learn the word conjugate until I started learning a foreign language. Yeah. So like we don't even know what we're doing in mm-hmm. our native tongue. And you and I have talked about that study they did on the brains of freestyle rappers where I think they did an MRI and had them yeah, it's like start a, freestyling. It's like a separate section. Totally different section of the brain lights up than when they're told to answer some questions or something like that, or when they're told to recite yeah. lyrics they already know. So you just have to give your time or your brain time and you have to put in the practice to unlock that part of your brain. Yeah. If indeed it's a part, it may just be like a, a certain like subset of circuits. Yeah. So I guess if the goal here is to speak just fluidly, just speaking a lot and listening a lot will get, get you to this point. Mm-hmm hopefully relatively soon, but it might still take a few years. If you want to be absolutely like an educated native speaker, 
maybe give yourself another 10 or 20 years <laughs> because yep. it's really not a fair contest right now. Mm-hmm. And as an adult or as somebody in school, you don't have full time to dedicate to language learning like a baby. Yeah. I have a job to do. I, and that job takes English. I can't do this job. In Sp- if I was speaking Spanish right now, it would help. It would not help. I mean, it would help some people, but it wouldn't help Tom. Yeah. The conversation would be bad. No, it wouldn't help me very. I know uh, like five words. So here I am not practicing <laughs> Spanish right now mm-hmm. because I have stuff to do. Actually, this is a good example because I can read a heck of a lot in Spanish, but I cannot speak Spanish very well at all. I know the word for chicken. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's actually the only important word. I could say como te llamas. I like saying it that way because it's funny. <laughs> yep. Actually, when I, when I first started taking Spanish and I, I hadn't learned how to pronounce that, I was like, llamas? What? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I remember going to a Spanish heritage festival in Iowa once when I was in high school. And this was when I was taking Spanish classes. And I was astonished at how many of the signs I could read because I certainly couldn't have thought of those words or said them very well. But when I just saw them, I was like, oh, I know what that means. Yeah. So it's totally different skills. Uh, All right. Let's go to the next question. What advice do you have for a Jedi council that is about to go off the cliff? Almost everyone is slowly retiring from the group and morale isn't great overall. The group has been active for a fairly long time, since February of 2016, and the core members, of which there are three, including myself, have been involved since the start. We've had a few more come and go since then. So how can I keep this mastermind group alive? And I'm glad that he used both terms because I just wanted to clarify for people who haven't heard our Jedi Councils episode. That's my word for mastermind group, which is essentially a regularly meeting group of people who are all meeting for the purpose of bettering each other. Yeah, it's like a support group, but often in this context, it's about like productivity and success yeah. and stuff. Yeah, so it, and I would say like the Jedi Councils I've been a part of will support, there's, I mean, there's, they're absolutely more than willing to support with things oh, yeah, that are yeah. going wrong, but the focus is about how do we build each other up? How do we help, how do we help everyone progress faster Yeah, and do more? Um, and I had a Jedi Council with four people, including myself, in it for I think two years and we would do a call every single Friday. And uh, that group actually did fall apart. There came a week where everyone had said, you know, oh, I can't make it this week for like four or five weeks in a row. And eventually I was just like, hey guys, I think we've all gotten to the point where all of us just wanna be doing our work on Friday mornings. I'm like, I love you guys, you're all dear friends, but I think the group has actually run its course. Its purpose has been met. And we're no longer, you know, getting value out of it. So we actually ended the call, ended the group, I guess, that the council sort of disbanded. And instead of having like a weekly Friday call, we just have calls whenever somebody needs to talk. So if one person's like, hey, I'm working on a project, I want some feedback, or I'm dealing with some burnout in my business, then one of the other people will be more than happy to schedule a call, but it's no longer scheduled. So the first thing I'm gonna say is, sometimes the council needs to end especially if it's a lot of people. You know, I think like two-person relationships, those are easy to keep going, especially if you're in close proximity with each other. Yeah. Like I think of uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. You know, they had like a lifelong discourse going because they were business partners. But I doubt that they had like a group of like five people that met every single week forever. Maybe, but I just, I doubt that. Um, But that being said, I do have some ideas for revitalizing the group that is what, this person wants to do 
And the first one is to just reduce the frequency. Because I know for me, the big stress point was every Friday I had that call and there were Fridays where I'm like, I want to film a video today or there's something coming up and I really want to go do that, but I've got the call. So maybe reduce it to once a month. I've got other calls and groups or Jedi councils that meet like once every quarter or once every six months, or they'll meet only once a year when we see each other in person at an event we all go to. So maybe the once a week thing doesn't need to happen. Uh, The other thing is shake up the format. So if you've done the same exact format every single year, like the one we did was once a week, somebody's in the hot seat. So every fourth week you're in the hot seat and you tell about what you're working on, uh, what you need help with, all that kind of stuff. But sometimes it comes your turn and like maybe you needed the hot seat two weeks ago, but you don't need it this week. Mm. You're like, I know exactly what I got to do this week. I've got three videos. I got to crank them out. I don't need motivation. I don't need therapy. I just need to go to work. Let's give it to someone else. So possibly if you've been doing that, maybe shake it up. Maybe just ask like who needs help this week or let's just do um, accountability. Let's not do hot seat. Or maybe just start like a Slack or a Discord so that you guys have like frequent communication in a, a not time scheduled sort of manner. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a meeting. But I think there's a lot of ways that you can sort of change things up. Just realize that it may die someday. That's okay. All things are ephemeral. Yep. Nothing is built to last forever. Even that 10,000 year clock that Jeff Bezos is building, it's going to die someday. Like the sun will expand, the earth will be swallowed up by it. And that clock will melt. But while it existed, that's fine. It was beautiful. And while your group existed, it was beautiful, and it had benefit. I'm gonna cry now. <laughs> Such poetry. Such poetry. The ephemerality of life. All right. Last question. Oh, I have a lot here. What is personal <laughs> branding? Yeah, that's I a have big question. no idea what it is, why it matters in the corporate world, and how to do it. Good question. Yeah. We've talked a lot about personal branding over the years, and I know we have an article on it, but... Yeah, I think, yeah, we do have an article that should be useful. Yeah, we'll have we'll link to that in the show notes. So I think of personal branding, here's what I wrote down as like a very distilled definition. Personal branding is the act of communicating to the world what you're about and what you can give to it. That's fair. I think it's a pretty decent definition. Yeah, it's like just how you're presenting yourself and uh, it doesn't have to always be professional, but how you're presenting yourself to strangers, basically, Mm -hmm. how you want the world to think of you if they don't know you closely. I think it's mostly professional. I think for the most part, it's mostly professional. Even if you're like a goofball kind of person. Oh, wait, yeah, maybe that's your profession. Yeah. That's your comedian. Uh, Yeah, your profession. Like if you're just a goofball of a person, but you don't want to like take it seriously as a profession, then only a few people are going to pay attention to you. Or maybe you go down to the stand-up club and do comedy every Friday night. But even that, you kind of, you're going to start to establish a, like a sort of brand for yourself. Yeah. Like even if it's just for fun, you're down at the comedy club every Friday night telling jokes, they're going to start to realize like, oh, Martin Bamey's the stand-up comic. He's always at uh, comedy bone or whatever. You know, like if, if there were two people and they were talking and one of them was like yeah hey wait (laughs) funny bone (laughs) one of them was like who's that who's that thomas frank guy what would you want the other person to say about you you know what what do people that don't just hang out with you and know you super personally say about you what do they think you are it's just this guy you know that's it that's it that's a great personal brand yeah stands out so i see this in sort of two different parts the first is working to discover the intersection between 
what your skills are, what you're interested in or maybe passionate about if you're to the point where you have a passion or at least interested in, and where there's a market of people that would pay or at least pay attention to what you're doing. And without one of these elements, the whole thing falls apart. If you don't have skills, then you have nothing you can offer. If you don't have passion, then you're eventually going to burn out and not care. And if there's no market there, well, you can do this thing, but you probably can't make a living doing it. So personal branding is really, it's about making a living doing the thing that you're good at and that you care about. Yeah. So you need to figure out where is that intersection? You know, you could be very, very good at picking the lint out of your own toes. You could be very into it, but no one's going to pay for that. Like some people might pay for it, but we're not going to go there. That's, that's called niche marketing. <laughs> that's that's very, not that's this real lesson. Niche. That's real niche. Um, and you're going to need some other skills around that. If you just like to do it, you know, and totally in the privacy of your own home, then uh, no one's going to pay you for it. And so you got to figure out like what, where, where's that, where do all three of those things meet? Yeah. So like for me, I like making videos. I'm good at making videos. And there's an audience of people who want to watch those videos. Without the audience, I would just be making videos for fun. And it would be a hobby. But it wouldn't be something that I could make a living or brand myself around. The second thing is craft a message around that intersection and then find a way to get it out to the world. And I think the word branding is there on purpose. Just like Coca-Cola or Apple or any company, even the sponsors that sponsor this podcast, they are doing a lot of different work to craft like a, a story and uh, values and principles around their brands, kind of like communicating what they're about, what they can give to the world. And then they're doing the work of marketing whether it be by sponsoring this podcast or buying ads elsewhere or making content or speaking at events or whatever it may be. So you just need to distill, like, what can I do as a person to succeed in the same way that these brands have succeeded? And I kind of broke that down into two different categories. Firstly, establishing an online presence. It's all about building relationships. Um, online presence is a really easy way to do it because you can build a website for yourself. You can have a portfolio. You can build social profiles um, and you could even maybe have like a place to write in longer form to let your knowledge or opinions be known. Medium account, YouTube channel, podcast, a blog, whatever it may be. And then I had building relationships, which could be attending events, could be doing informational interviews where you talk with other professionals about what you want to do and get to know what they do for their work, uh, meeting people, networking. And then they're kind of like, additional levels like speaking at conferences or writing books these two things like definitely do them if you can but they typically are done by people who are a little who are a little bit more established though there are exceptions i mean anybody can write a book and self-publish it and anybody can yeah. speak at conferences like ignite where anyone can sign up to do a five-minute presentation anybody can speak at toastmasters that kind of thing um but usually speaking at conferences and writing books are done by people with established brands who want to further build those so to look at like my brand, there's thomasjfrank.com that basically communicates. I'm a YouTuber, podcaster, author, speaker. We have College Info Geek, which is really branded around me. Not not for not like all around me, but a lot of it is. Yeah. The YouTube channel is branded around me. This podcast is branded around us. So it communicates our expertise to the world. Um, for three and a half years, Listen Money Matters helped to establish me as a personal finance person. I don't know if experts, the word, but person who person with a particular interest, 
Um, I have a Twitter account, an Instagram account, a LinkedIn page, and a Facebook fan page. Um, and then like I speak at events too. So this year I spoke at VidCon and VidSummit and uh, Menfluential. So those were three in-person experiences where I was able to kind of like raise my standing and show off what I know to a crowd of people. So all those things can help to build your brand. And the reason that you want to do this is that the more people who know who you are and know what you can do, the more opportunities you have, the more opportunities you may have to do a project with somebody or uh, get a job, or eventually you may get to a point where you are attracting people that you may want to hire, or you're attracting customers or clients or people who you may coach, you know, really it's just about finding the people who can benefit from what you have to offer and who can pay for it or who can contribute something in return or who can learn from it and, um, you know, letting them know you exist. Yeah. And you got to be consistent about it. You're mm -hmm. not going to build a brand immediately. So like, if you want to be, if you're part of like AIGA and you do design and stuff. And what's AIGA? I, you know what? I actually don't remember what it stands for. It's just, you know, my fiance is a... Something about graphic design, right? Designer. So, like, I'm so familiar with the acronyms that I've never bothered to... American Institute of Graphic Arts. Aha. That makes sense. Oh, and there's one I didn't, I didn't mention, but this is a good one to add, like going to industry clubs yeah. or organizations. Yeah, so, like, you go to this, maybe you volunteer, you get a position mm -hmm. where you're helping your, uh, like, state chapter or whatever. Uh, or at the least, maybe you, you just keep showing up. Because people can't form an image of you if they don't ever see you. And sometimes physical things like this are a great place to make those connections. Yep. Um, also, side note, like all of all of our usernames are basically the same everywhere that they're public-facing. Tom Frankly, Yomar Tholomew. Whereas if my username was like, la, 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 I like Zelda underscore XX orange juice five, that would, nobody would find that. <laughs> I won't even be able to repeat it right now. <laughs> but no, people would be like, but the Instagram is Yo Martholomew. Where's his Twitter? Oh, well, you've got to go to this completely ridiculous thing. No yep. one will find it. Now I'm just a regular person with random social media accounts. There's yeah. no unifying brand that pulls them all together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So finding a way to craft a consistent image across all the platforms that you are on, um, going to those industry events, things like that. And the last thing I want to mention here. So I remember having a conversation with a friend a while back um, and I was, they were going to an event and it was really competitive to get in. And this was an event that was going to happen every single year. So I was like, all right, well, keep building your art so you can, you know, apply to get into the event, but why not also volunteer for the event too? And, you know, maybe you could eventually get like a position where you know the organizers, things like that. And th their opinion on this was, the organizers don't care if you know them, they only care about the quality of your art. And maybe this is true in that case, but someone once once mentioned in a Slack group that I'm in that like the art world is 10% talent and 90% schmoozing. And uh, I think that a lot of life is like that. Like talent and the quality of your work definitely counts, but just having people know you, even if it's in a slightly different context, puts you top of mind and it's going to make them consider your work and consider your talent a little more closely. Yeah. So like if you volunteer for an event, you eventually get a leadership position and then they're just like, whoa, actually you all, you're also a programmer? Well, we're hiring for that. 
like maybe you're not the best programmer in the world, but you're the one that they know about right now. Yeah. And that's that I mean that's the case with me. Like I know people personally who I would easily say are a more thoroughly uh, skilled programmer mm-hmm. than I am. But I still get to do things yep. because I've made a point of making it known that I do them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even like the, the first thing that we ever worked together on was coding. Yeah. And I probably could have hired somebody off of Upwork. Like but there's nothing stopping me from doing that. Yeah. But I was like, hey, I know you. Yeah, and I built my personal website. I built a blog. I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm doing relevant things. So you automatically know he can do it. I don't know if he's the best because it, it doesn't make sense to literally waste all this time searching for the yeah. number one best in the universe. Yeah. But if you know this person and they'll get the job done and they'll do a good job, then they've they're like eighty percent of the way there. I think yeah, that's they just gotta what it not is. they gotta not blow it now. Because if I was looking through a big listing of Upwork freelancers and I didn't know who any of them were, had no personal relationship, then I would be hard judging the pro, the uh, price and the portfolio. Yeah. Be like, all right, who's got the best portfolio here and who can I afford? But because I knew you, I didn't do any of that. I didn't even go compare your work with anyone else's. I was like, I think that the quality of your work is adequate and I know you and I like you. That's what so I'm known for, enough. adequate and known. <laughs> adequate and known. I'm a known but, quantity. Yeah, you're, you're basically, you're like 80% <laughs> of the way there. It's now your contest to lose. And you could yes. still lose. You know, I, I could I could blow it. I could do something really stupid and prove myself unworthy of the stuff. But if yeah. people know you, you've got your foot in the door, and that's way more than a bunch of random names and numbers on the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only way you could have lost is if you had, like, actually failed yeah. to build the website. Yeah. But I don't think, like, some Gary challenger is going to show up at the door and be like, I challenged Martin for <laughs> oh, yeah, the well, job. <laughs> I built it, too. <laughs> I built my own version. If you like it better, you have to fire Martin and hire me instead. <laughs> okay. I could be, like, Emperor Nero here. That would be I'll really... i my thumb wavering. I mean, that'd be interesting. <laughs> It would be interesting, but also really. It doesn't like seem like a, it would. Real it seems like move. a TV kind of thing. <laughs> like I don't think it would work out that well in real life. Yeah, I don't think it would work very well either. Plus, like, even if I did hire the Gary Challenger, now he knows that I was willing to drop you, the moment arrival showed up. Yeah, like, I'd just do the same to him. Yep. You know, loyalty counts. You got to watch out. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, I think that's a decent explanation of personal branding, but we do have an article on it. Um, I do want to have that article updated at some point, but I think right now it still distills what we said here. Um, I wrote that article probably five years ago, but I don't think the definition of personal branding has really changed. Also, the second episode of this podcast ever. Sorry, no, fourth, the fourth episode. It was the second interview um, is all about personal branding. Okay. Because my second guest on this show ever was Dan Shawbell, who wrote the book Brand Yourself or Promote Yourself. That's what it is. And he's like, he's branded himself pretty well as a personal branding expert. Expert. There it is. Yeah. So, in fact, when I think of personal branding, he's the first guy that comes to mind. Good job, Dan. Good job. Pretty good work. Thumbs up. Yeah. Thumbs up. Gold star. Um, So if you want some more from the proverbial horse's mouth, then you can go listen to College Info Geek Podcast episode four. And otherwise, I think we're going to wrap this episode up. Yeah. So you can find show notes for this episode over at cigpodcast.com slash 242. Or if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, you can find the description link and click there to find show notes. We'll have links to anything we mentioned, any potential resources that would be good follow-ups. So check that out. 
Um, also on those show notes, you will find a link to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And that is a great way to support this show if you enjoy it. That helps us go up the rankings, helps us get out to more people. So definitely do that if you have a little bit of time, you want to show your appreciation for the show and you want to help it grow. You could also, of course, just share it with a friend, maybe send them your favorite episode and they will hopefully become a listener as well. Um, last but not least, collegeinfogeek.com slash resources is where you can find all of our favorite tools, apps, books that we recommend, our college packing list, all kinds of really cool stuff that can help your college and high school and educational career. Yeah. So that's it. If you have any questions for five questions, Instagram, Twitter, email, set them at the beginning of the episode. And uh, other than that, we will see you in next week's episode. Stay cute.